This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. I'm joined on the line now by Joint Artistic Directors Neil Armfield and Rachel Healy. Good morning to you both. Hi, Richard. Hello, Richard. So, first of all, congratulations, the, the pair of you, not only for launching uh, a very strong program for 2018, but you've just had also your tenure extended. Neil, uh, I'm going to direct this question to you. It does seem in Australia that often festivals have a bit of a mania for moving festival directors on after only perhaps three years or four years at the most. So to have your tenure extended through until 2021 is bucking the trend a little bit in that regard. Uh, yeah, but it may be the trend, uh, maybe the start of the trend in a, in a sense. It's much more common in, in Europe and Britain for uh, festival directors to have a, a kind of a longer, a, a, a longer period of tenure. Uh, in Australia, maybe because the Adelaide Festival used to have uh, a tradition of a, of a single artistic director for a single festival. Uh, and when it went annual, it, uh, it it sort of started to shift that. But I think it's now finding uh, a real kind of rhythm to it. From our point of view, it allows us to plan uh, well in advance. You know, we, we're particularly interested in, in big events that get people coming from all over the country, and which happened with Saul and the and the Outdoor Secret River this year. And uh, and next year, you know, we have the uh, the Hamlet that, that I did at Glyndebourne, which is an absolute Adelaide exclusive, and a number of others. And and to get these events happening well in advance, you you really need often three or or four years to uh, to plan them. Now, Rachel, one of the cornerstones or one of the foundations of the festival this year is a series of uh, performances by let's call them divas. Why kind of? focus on these four significant female artists? Uh, look, it was a, a combination of, of serendipity, really, and uh, and a strong interest, uh, well, personal interest anyway, in um, uh, in uh, the, the sort of major female voices uh, around Australia and uh, around the world. It's incredibly thrilling, and it just so seems with our dates that we could have uh, Grace Jones, one of the the really blazing art rock divas of our generation there to kick off our festival. And the last generation. In, indeed. <laughs> uh, and then at the very end of the festival to have a voice that, you know, the New York Times says is continuing the lineage of Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Billie Holiday, and that is Cecile McLaren Salvant. I mean, hearing people uh, describe her, you, you know that you, that you are going to be hearing... A voice that will will uh, will be known throughout the generations as one of the most significant of our era. So to have have Grace at the beginning, Cecile at the end, and uh, and um, and Sophie are not uh, in, in the, the middle. And uh, Kate Miller Heike. And Kate Miller My question, Neil. Okay, we sometimes <laughs> squabble over questions, Ricky. <laughs> It depends because we have varying levels of enthusiasm. We have yeah competing levels of enthusiasm, I should say. <laughs> Now, uh, Rachel, something that you just said made me immediately think of another question, which is that notion of to what degree do your personal tastes influence the program versus your awareness of needing to program for an Adelaide audience versus an interstate audience or even sometimes an international audience? Um, Look, it's, uh, of course, personal taste is... It, it's fundamental, but it, you know, and of course, it is about taste. But it is also uh, the fact of seeing kind of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 
of, of works of, uh, in the performing arts over decades that you bring your knowledge of what's happening in the art form uh, to bear and I guess your taste and your knowledge become intertwined. And so I think that, you know, it's very hard. In fact, we don't program works that we don't feel personally excited about because the program's on sale for about five months. And, you know, you, you have to be authentic. You have to... If, if you're trying to encourage people to travel to Adelaide to see shows, it's. It, I think it's impossible to do unless you, unless you can absolutely say hand on heart this is going to be genuinely thrilling and you know there's a huge amount of work in the world other people of course would make other choices but we bring our professional judgment and our personal belief to uh to the job of, of telling people about the program and for, for me richard even though that question was for rachel um you know it's the same it's the same principle as when i as when i direct uh, um uh, a, a, an opera, a play, or, or a film. You, you are a, a director is an audience of one. Uh, you are using always what you have, um, your own imagination and your own responses to uh, to develop what you think is going to be great. And and there's a great similarity, I think, in in directing a festival. You work off your own enthusiasms, and that's what gives a festival its personality. Now, something else that is giving the Adelaide Festival for 2018 personality is a sense of shows that people may have missed, perhaps, for example, at a season in Melbourne or Sydney, or a show that they may have seen or read about at a festival overseas and not had the the chance to see properly. There's a a real sense that you've collectively, you've programmed some really significant works from... uh, companies Australian and internationally that uh, people you've kind of people's appetites have been whetted a bit by reading about these in other festivals or in other programs and uh, so you're tapping into that fear of FOMO that is part of modern life <laughs> yeah I mean I mean we, we of course uh, you know we, we travel all the time and we see the very latest works that the major artists and major companies are producing but you know we had a number of conversations about the fact that that isn't the only pool of work we should be looking to if the Adelaide Festival promises the country that they can come to Adelaide and see the really great artists of their generation then it's it's part of the promise that we don't just look to work that's being produced in the last couple of years and there's three pieces in particular uh Robert Lepage's Far Side of the Moon which uh, I think is his masterpiece uh Simon Stone's uh, Thyestes and Hotel Moderne's uh, The Great War which uh have all uh, had seasons in other either Australian contexts or international contexts and have uh, and have been uh, developed over and been seen over many years, but we felt absolutely needed to be revisited in our program. They're often the works that that uh, across the the years that that follow their first season become have become seminal for other artists and for those for those same artists. And and that the, their work is often um, uh, kind of carries the seeds of those of those uh, initial first works uh, or most mature works. Uh, in uh, in in what follows, and you know, we regard Thyestes as really uh, the work that, that Simon Stone became. What is you know the, now the international sensation that he is. He's working all over Europe, um, and it was first seen in Melbourne, but it hasn't been seen in Adelaide. It's been seen briefly in Sydney, and th- th- also with uh, with Far Side of the Moon, an absolute. It just sets the whole 
uh, argument for for the kind of theatre that Lepage has has been so brilliant at. Now, something else that's been programmed for 2018, which I'm particularly excited by, 2014, uh, I got to see Roman Tragedies in Adelaide, which was just one of the most magnificent theatre experiences I've had in the last decade or more. So this year you've programmed work by uh, the same... uh, For next year, I should say, you've programmed a work by the same Belgian director and company, uh, uh, which, again, condensing a series of works of Shakespeare into... A very astute, I understand, commentary on political sensationalism. Neil, this one's to you. Yes, it's uh, Ivo Van Ho uh, with the Toniel Group and its Kings of War. Um, it, it, it's amazing uh, the effect that uh, the Roman tragedies had on the country in 2013, because you, you know the, the reverberations. Uh, came from Adelaide in a way that only a really original and very, very great work can do. And people were just, just you know, flying in to catch that last performance, actually. Um, and uh, Rachel and I both saw Kings of War. Uh, Rachel, I think, saw it in the first season. I saw it um, in, in when it toured to BAM in New York. But it very rarely tours, actually. The, the company... Um, based in Amsterdam, sort of are doing such important work there. But they had a great time in Adelaide uh, and uh, really were very keen to come back to the city and make this festival one of the one of their sort of homes. But the the, the work tells uh, a tale which resonates so strongly now with uh, with you know with what's happening in North Korea, with with the way that Trump seems to be playing so sort of fast and loose in, in such a frightening way in world politics and using the, the threat of war that um, the, the production looks precisely at this, at this idea that war is used by leaders as a means of maintaining power or of grabbing power. And um, uh, Van Hove, in taking, compressing these, um, these five sh- plays of Shakespeare, Henry the Henry the Five, Henry the Sixth, One, Two, and Three, and Richard the Third, you get this amazing sense of this this line of energy, this line of uh, of, of narrative uh, in which in which power is seen for what it is. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield, who are the joint artistic directors of Adelaide Festival. They launched their program for the 2018 festival earlier this week. The festival dates, uh, if you're thinking of uh, booking a trip to Adelaide to see some of the works we're talking about, uh, the 2nd to the 18th of March. And I suggest jumping online and booking flights, accommodation and tickets as quickly as you can. One of the exciting things for me about any festival is the opportunity to see work by local artists side by side with international artists. Rachel, uh, I understand you've got works in the program for 2018 by Brink Productions, by Patch Theatre. Talk to us about the importance of supporting local companies in this regard in an international festival context. Oh, look, it's, it's fundamental uh, to the Adelaide Festival and always has been. Uh, the, the work by Brink is really exciting because they're a small to medium company uh, who punch really, you know, well above their weight and they have gathered together uh, uh, a number of artists, um, uh, two from the UK, uh, Alice Oswald, who is a poet, and Justin Pook, who is a, a very acclaimed composer who's worked with Martin Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick, uh, amongst many others, and uh, they are turning Alice's poem Memorial into a major work for the stage. It's based loosely on, on Homer's Iliad and tells the, the deaths, really, of 215 of the soldiers who died in the Trojan Wars. 
and uh, the central uh, uh, performance who uh, performer who will will uh, uh, share the poem is Helen Morse, but she will be augmented by uh, 215 local. Uh, volunteers and after its Adelaide premiere it will go on to have seasons in Australia and then a season at the Barbican and so you know when the Adelaide Festival um, uh, supports these sorts of projects it's not just uh, supporting them so they can have a profile in the festival and play to a local audience they also have uh, the opportunity to then use that platform to be presenting works internationally. I mean, last week, uh, last year rather, Gravity and Other Myths, a local acrobatic troupe, was supported by the festival. Uh, we uh, were able to support them so they could secure uh, federal funding. And as a consequence, they uh, premiered in Amsterdam at a very uh, influential festival uh, last year, and they now have a major European tour uh, lined up. So the Adelaide Festival is is not only supporting the local presentation during the festival dates, but that platform is the springboard for many other gigs, both nationally and, and internationally. So it's a, a really significant part of what we do. It certainly reinforces for me the role that uh, any festival, uh, whether it's Sydney Festival, Melbourne Festival, etc., plays in supporting and presenting work and helping local artists springboard. But certainly for me, Adelaide Festival uh, has is really an unmissable arts event. If people have not been over before, I definitely recommend jumping online, www.adelaidefestival.com.au. Check out the full program and start thinking about a trip to, uh, to South Australia in Mad March. Uh, I've been talking with Neil Armstrong Field and Rachel Healy. Thank you both for your time and congratulations again on uh, the extension of your tenure until uh, for the next few years. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Bye. Bye-bye. talk sound art. I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Goddard and Sarah Retelick, uh, who've come in to chat about uh, an event called Soundings, which is happening on Sunday at Bus Projects in Rokeby Street, Collingwood, which is also the uh, opportunity to launch uh, a new kind of collective called Clip. So welcome to you both. That's right. Thanks Thank you. So, Sarah, let's start with you. Um, what is CLIP and why have you organised this event, Soundings? Okay. Uh, CLIP is a group of artists who work with sound. Um, so we've just decided to, to make it a formal collective, I guess. Um, so Soundings is our first group show. Um, it's also kind of coinciding with our graduation from the RMIT Sound Art um, degree uh so we're putting on a one-day event at bus which will include sort of exhibition um installation performance and and other things so yeah clips just something that we're we're sort of we've put together so we can go forward and and do things next year and into the future kind of so with a a bit of branding and focus and and a shared identity rather than having to go should we just have a group show and what will we call it next time or yeah i guess so yeah yeah now uh, Andrew, in terms of exhibiting sound art, talk to us about how you go about doing that because I think for some people will be going, is it just going to be a gallery full of headphones that you walk around and put <laughs> headphones on or how is it going to be presented and, and, and created? So talk to us about that. Yeah, um, well, we've kind of come up against that kind of um, misconception about it that it is could just possibly be like just speakers or just headphones in a room. But um, 
I think that you'll see on Sunday that there's quite a diverse kind of range of ways that you can incorporate sound into um, into your performance or installation kind of practice. Um, so we'll have some video works. Uh, we'll have installation works that involve um, other sort of mediums like painting and sculpture um, and then just performance works. Um, but, yeah, it's quite diverse. <laughs> what style of performance works are we talking about? Uh, I think... There will be a variety. <laughs> um, there's going to be some like sound diffusion, like live sound diffusion, so meaning multi-channel, multi-speaker works. Um, also, some uh, sort got, like, of a panel presentation. A panel presentation, yes. Mm. Um, so a formal discussion, or yeah, I mean, we're not exactly sure what to expect from that performance, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think um, it's more satirical. I think. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, there's a bit of um, sort of noise stuff happening as well. I think um, with Don and his feedback mm. um, performance. Yeah. So covering quite a gamut of uh, different p- of the the I guess the potential of sound art. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. What was it that attracted you both to kind of working with sound uh, in terms of your own individual practices? Um, so I I've played music for a long time, and I guess I got to a point where I wanted to expand on that and break out into new ways of making sound and applying it to different um, you know places and applications. Um, so. I decided to sort of do this course and, and get involved in sound in a different way for that for that reason, really, just um, wanting to experiment and push things a bit further than the kind of confines or framework of music. So it's been a really awesome way to do that and, yeah, totally changed my idea of sound, really, in a mm. lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, I've got a pretty similar experience coming from more of a musical background. Um, but yeah, just um, trying to connect it to things that I was interested in when I was younger, which is um, things more to do with like physics and psychology and just how it kind of relates to everyday experience and listening and everything. Talk to us about the difference between music and sound, because for, uh, everybody is familiar with music and music is one of the, the art forms that can create such a, a strong emotional response in people. Does sound create the same emotional response and how do you define the difference between sound and music? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that, um, like all senses, sound does, um, it has a connection to, the, to memories and how you kind of um, experience emotional reactions to things. Um, I find that uh, the difference between sort of just sound as individual kind of things that happen in music is that it's organised, um, and through organising it, that's how you can kind of um, create or tailor an experience that, like, evokes or kind of elicits a response in listeners. Um, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I would say also. I guess it's it's one of those things that um, there's no real way to define the difference between sound art and music. Like, mm. I think there's so much that overlaps. Um, and it's sort of a thing that we've all grappled with, I'm sure, over the past three years, like trying to, to sort of define where a sound practice sits within this larger music sort of industry and, and, and that kind of thing. So and also where it sits in relation to the visual arts sector as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's sort of something that we'll all continue to sort of redefine throughout our practices in, into the future, yeah. And so the, the sound art course at RMIT, which is obviously a, a fairly specialised course, how many people were in the cohort of students at the start as opposed to that you've ended up kind of graduating with? Um, we've... I think there was about 16 at the start and now there's 14. 
So mm. we sort of it's lost a-, a few and gained a few. And, um, yeah, so it's been a really solid group. Mm. Um, we've been quite lucky to have a really great group of artists in our year, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, it makes quite a big difference when you've got um, that kind of support of your peers. Um because I think that at the moment what's happening is there's a lot less people in coming into the course in first year, at least this year, there's, I think, just one person. Um, so it's... Does that put the course at risk? Yeah, there's a bit of uncertainty about how it will uh, sort of be um, held together going forward. Um, I think quite a lot of, like, the other mediums are getting sort of merged together in some ways um, due to a range of reasons, but... Um, so have the the 14 students who've kind of, who are graduating uh, alongside you from the the sound art kind of course at RMIT are they all involved in clip or have, uh, some of them have some of them gone off on separate ways or um, no we're all involved so we we just kind of put a call out for anyone that was interested to get involved and I guess that'll sort of work itself out throughout the next year you know people that will go overseas and do their own thing and come back to it or whatever so but it's it's very inclusive like we wanted it to to stay as open as possible and anyone that was keen can yeah Mm. take on responsibilities or not you know (laughs) and to what degree has the the course shaped your own uh kind of practices in terms of working with sound to how how has your your sound work your sound art changed over the the three years that the course has been running um, I think for me, I uh, like I said before, I obviously was working mainly in music and, you know, tonal-based um, composition. Um, I think throughout this course I've sort of expanded into a, to exploring sound as a texture or, or something more, more so than um, a, mel- you know, melodic or harmonic um, experience. So I think that's a pretty major... Also, mm. like, thinking about sound in a spatial way, so in, sound in a room, how it behaves and um, how you can manipulate it and, you know, experiment with it and use it as an actual sort of tangible medium rather than being sort of confined to, you know, notes. <laughs> yeah, quite quite similar kind of experience, just learning about um, kind of how you can use it, just sound other than, like, instrumental sound. Um in either musical or sort of non-musical ways to kind of convey messages or um, communicate ideas. Um, also, just the relationship of, like, sound to places is something definitely in, like, Sarah's work I found to be really interesting. In what regard? Because I know that from looking at your bio, you have an interest in kind of hidden histories, for example. So can you yeah. use sound to, to uncover those histories as you, for example, a sound installation on the street of Melbourne? That, would, that is something that, would that be something that would intrigue you in terms of how you could use sound to peel back the layers of history in a city to reveal what lies underneath the, the bitumen and, and concrete? Yeah, I mean, that's what exactly what I'm exploring at the moment, actually. Yeah. Um, so... Just, I've been working at a site in Melbourne's CBD, um, and I'm yeah using sound to sort of look at how um, how unnoticed this site is, I guess. So I'm sort of using real sounds from the world um, in that that particular um, location and taking them into and putting them in a gallery situation. So and just exploring how. Um, you know the 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 sound of the environment might um sort of struggling to explain this mm-hmm. um uh like envelop what history might be there i guess in a way so just looking at it from a sonic 
perspective rather than a visual. Mm. Yeah. And Andrew, your practice, I know you've got an interest in synesthesia, the, the, the way people can hear colour or see sound. Yeah, yeah. It's got um, a lot of that to, a lot of that relationship comes through with it. Um, yeah, so I've um, been mostly working with uh, sound and light, so um, using LED lighting um, to create kind of compositions um, that involve motion and gesture and looking at building and breaking relationships sort of between the two media, um, which I find really interesting because they don't sort of exist physically. Matthew Holmes, the director of The Legend of Ben Hall, uh, an Australian film which was released in 2016 uh, and is now in the running for an actor award if enough people vote for it. Um, Matthew, is it kind of somewhat kind of nerve-wracking knowing that the you have to, what, kind of lobby people, encourage voting? Kind of, it, it feels quite artificial in some ways it's a little scary absolutely and especially this year because this is this year has a record number of feature films in uh, up for the um, AACTA awards so you have uh, I think it's anywhere between 34 and 36 feature films which is an absolute record so and there's some magnificent films in the running so it is. Um, it's going to be a tight year for everybody. Yeah, and uh, it is absolutely nerve wracking. Um, you know, because yeah, you've got uh, so many um, AACTA members who are you know all voting, and and you know, you just hope they've all seen them all. And you know, oh man, it's. Do members yeah. get sent out screeners, for example? Yeah, they yeah. get they, absolutely. They get screeners so they can see um, all the films. And um, yeah, it, it's it's tough because you just you just never know which way it's going to go. I mean, I, I would almost feel a little bit safer if it was just a committee of five people that were making the decision. You would then know who is on the committee, what their tastes are, and so yeah, forth. They, yeah, They presumably have a track record as well. That's right. But when it's sort of open, when it's sort of open to not the public, but up, you know, to the members, you know, there's just no way of telling where things are going to land. Yeah. And particularly challenging when you've made an independent film, which means you don't have the the backing of kind of an established producer behind you who can pay for advertising, for example. Or for sure. For, for those, the equivalent of for your consideration ads. in That's kind of, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you, you just have to hope that the work speaks for itself in, you know, all occasions and, you know... And you know the the, the cross section of films that are up. You know, with I'm not the only low budget film that's in the running, and it goes all the way through to you know really big budget films like Lion and you know Jungle, and all the way down to you know small independent films like The Legend of Ben Hall. So it, you know, is it is it is it an open and even playing field? I don't know, but you know. It is what it is. Yeah, I, it's one of those challenges, isn't it, that the films that get the most eyeballs presumably get the most votes, which means if your film has had much wider distribution than someone mm-hmm. else's, you've got a better chance of then scoring um, a nomination for feature film in the AFI Actor Awards. Yeah, because, so, yeah. I mean, especially in this year, I mean, for uh, any one AACTA member to to make a, a you know a very informed decision on what they think is best they've got to have watched all 34 to 36 films that feature films there's a lot of films to watch so you know um it's tough 
Let's talk about your film, The Legend of Ben Hall. Um, uh, you initially made a short, the, the Last Days of Ben Hall, a couple of years in advance. Was that kind of the calling card version of the feature you wanted to make or did you always imagine them as quite different to one another? No, it was it was absolutely the calling card. I had written a Ben Hall feature film years ago, script, but I couldn't get off the, that off the ground, so I decided to make a short film based on the last few pages of that script. That was the, the short film, The Last Days of Ben Hall. We only actually got as far as filming The Last Days of Ben Hall. We never actually completed that short. We filmed, so we got our footage, and then I cut a trailer. And after showing that trailer to some people, uh, they, they were so impressed with it, they said, let's keep going, let's just keep filming, let's gather everyone again, get some more finance, let's continue and make the feature. So The Last Days of Ben Hall actually is mingled into the full feature film uh, and, you know, you really can't tell the difference between what's the feature and what's the short. So, Is it ever going to see the light of day as its own self-contained short? Not, not really, but if anyone really wants to see what the short film is going to be, you can basically take the last 20 minutes of The Legend of Ben Hall and you've pretty much got the short film right there. I wondered whether you were going to put it on as a DVD extra or something like no, that. No, not really, no, <laughs> no. So what is it about the, the bush range of Ben Hall that intrigued you enough to write a screenplay and then uh, kind of direct your own feature film about him? Well, first of all, I was fascinated that I didn't know anything about Ben Hall when I discovered him. Um, I'd always wanted to make a Ned Kelly film, um, but then they made a Ned Kelly film. So I really had to look abroad and then discovered this guy that was far more prolific than Ned Kelly, um, much more of a, you know, a Wild West outlaw. And I was so surprised I'd never heard of him. Um, his story is extremely uh, complex. It's extremely big. Um, it's epic sort of stuff, and it just begged to be made into a movie. Um, and a quite emotional uh, story as well um, of this guy trying to reconnect with his son and, and, and torn between sort of a good side in himself and a bad side in himself and um, a very different story to Ned Kelly as well. Now, and dubbed Brave Ben Hall in uh, in folk songs and mm-hmm. the likes as well. Why brave? Look, he was certainly he was certainly brave in the sense that he, um, you know, some of the feats that he got up to in his time, taking over whole towns for three days, um, you know, bailing up dozens and dozens of people on the road, getting into gunfights with the police, he certainly was brave and did some very outlandish things. Um, there was certainly no... Um, cowardice in, in that respect. He certainly wasn't doing the right thing, though, uh, and this is the thing that a lot of um, folklore mixes up. They call him Brave Ben Hall and they herald him as, you know, that he becomes a folk hero, but like many Australian folk heroes, they have a, a, a sordid past and um, they're, they're not so clean cut. Yeah. Now, it's a good thing that you were making your feature film uh, in this day and age as opposed to wanting to make a Ben Hall feature film circa 1910 Mm. because we had this wave of Australian bushranger films Mm. which then suddenly got banned. The the whole topic of of bushrangers was banned as a subject for filmmaking around 1911, 1912. It certainly was. And I've heard that that's because of influence from Hollywood and American studios at that time who wanted to flood the the Australian market with their own films and they bought some economic leverage to bear on the Australian film industry at the time. I don't know how true that is, Mm. but were it not for that ban, we could have seen Bushranger films grow to become like an Australian genre, an Australian idiom of filmmaking in the same way that Westerns did in the US. Yeah, well, you know, we were making them before the Americans were, these Westerns, and they were hugely popular. I don't know about the American, you know, interference at all. I've not heard of that before. Um, And so I can't speak for it's how valid that is, but 
I certainly know that um, the popularity of the Bushranger films was so big um, that the government here felt that it was going to cause some sort of civil unrest by glorifying outlaws that um, they banned them in several states uh, and we saw that genre die off. And there was actually a movie about Ben Hall that was made in 1912 and um, by a director called John Gavin and um, unfortunately it's now a lost film. Like so many early Australian mm. films, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, so it was a bit of a death of a genre that, you know, could have really been the, you know, could have become something that was very much our own. So, but look, there's no time like the present. Let's bring it all back. Yeah. Well, people uh, have got the chance to bring it back and help give it more publicity by voting for your film if they are a member of uh, the... What does AACTA stand for? Remind me. Because it, it uh, was... It, when it was just the AFI Awards, it was so much easier, easier to remember. Yeah, I believe it's the Australian um, Academy of Cinema, um, Arts and Television or something like that. Um, I may have got that around the wrong way. It's but in that, very small print on the screen. But so, but that's what I believe it stands for. Yep. So. Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts. There we go. Okay. Uh, yeah, Academy... There's enough academies. Go back to the mm-hmm. AFIs, I say. Um, but so if you are uh, a member of uh, the AACTA actor, as kind of I normally call it, uh, screen professionals who've undergone an accredita- accreditation process, voting is currently open uh, for feature films. So voting closes on the 7th of November. So presumably your feature has been sent out as a screener to people. It absolutely has. And yep. if people aren't members of the AFI actor but want to pick up a copy, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray for people who are just curious to see it. Yep, and iTunes as well, and yep. Google Play. Now, one of the things that I haven't watched the film in its entirety, I normally spend Wednesday night prepping and, and instead last night I had to go and do a poetry reading at a bookshop. Um, no worries. But I watched some of it and mm-hmm. I was really intrigued by the fact that you fling us into the action in the film. Like yes. within the first five minutes we're in the middle of a gunfight in mm-hmm. the bush uh, and I wondered you know, why did you want to throw us head first into the action like that and to what degree did the the tropes of Western films and kind of uh, rather not Western as in kind of Western culture in inverted commas, but Westerns as a genre. To what degree were you influenced by Westerns in in scripting and making this? Oh well, look. Of course, there's absolutely an influence. Um, you know, I grew up watching a lot of westerns, and so I have a, a personal love of the genre. So that absolutely uh, influenced. Um, but um, my script was driven and influenced by the history and what actually happened, um, and everything. There's no fictitious characters in the films. There's no fictitious events. Everything that happens in the film is based in history, um, and so I, that really was my guide and my model. As far as fl- getting flinging everyone into the action, uh, that was a real gunfight that did, did take uh, place it's where we start the film um, but there was also a very big push while we were editing the film to um, get into the action very very early uh, and you know grab the audience um, uh, you know with something that was very exciting and and so uh, which was much more of an editorial decision when my original script uh, originally eased us into the story with a lot more scenes before that took place so it's just something that you know, it happens when you're editing and, you know, reviewing a film and crafting it. What also struck me as intriguing about that film is what it tell, what that gunfight tells us about Ben Hall's character. He ha- has the opportunity to shoot one of the cops who's chasing him in the back mm. uh, uh, from uh, a kind of a concealed position and doesn't do it. So, yeah. again, there's a cinematic decision to give us a sense of the character of the man. Absolutely. And, and that's consistent with what he was like in throughout history. He... He certainly was involved in gunfights and would defend himself violently if necessary, but he never actually uh, killed anybody, although some of his gang members did. Um, But he was 
always characterised to be hesitant to take life. Um, it seemed to be a line he never wanted to cross, um, even though he was robbing people and doing a, a heck of a job doing it and so on. Uh, he just always wanted to... He seemed to not want to go down that path um, and he was able to, you know, whether by ch- by uh, circumstance or whether by choice, we don't know, but he managed to, in one sense, keep his hands uh, clean of that act. Given all the research you've done into him and the film th- that you've made, do you admire Ben Hall? I, 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 I don't admire Ben Hall uh, in, in a sense. I'm fascinated by Ben Hall. Um, I think there's a big difference. Uh, you know, he was a, he was a criminal, um, but I also see the other side to him, and that's what I'm fascinated about. I see a, a, a man torn between the light and the dark inside of himself, and I just think that's, you know, we all have that. So I see him as a very, very relatable human guy in a, in, you know, in a, in a you know, very difficult circumstance wrestling with um, those two sides of himself. So it's not so much that I admire him, but I'm just fascinated and have been for, you know, over a decade now. And uh, tell us about the the casting process. Who did you find to play? I got an actor out of Sydney called Jack Martin. Uh, When I was casting around for The Last Days of Ben Hall, the short film, I'd put a call out on the internet and um, I was being sent a lot of headshots, but I wasn't seeing anyone who looked like Ben Hall. And it was very important to me that I had someone who looked like Ben Hall because we know exactly what he looked like. And then one day, uh, actor Janet, Jack Martin um, sent me his headshot, and when I saw his face, there it was. And so, after um, a very short sort of um, interviewing and audition process, uh, I knew he was my Ben Hall. Now, as we said, uh, the film is not in cinemas now, but it is available on your various home entertainment uh, kind of options, kind of streaming, kind of uh, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. There's also a book out about the legend of Ben Hall, um, kind of lavishly illustrated. And if you are a member of the AFI Actors, then you can vote for it as uh, for for the feature film category uh, uh, up until the 7th of November. Uh, And I think you can also vote on hair and makeup winner as well. So, yes. Yeah. Um, just as a final question for you, Matthew, what's next for you as a, as a filmmaker? Well, look, uh, that's the golden question. Um, we have uh, uh, a prequel film to The Legend of Ben Hall that we want to get off called The Legend of Frank Gardner, which explores the Bush Ranger Frank Gardner and the origins of Ben Hall, um, which just won the uh, best first place best uh, screenplay finalist in Wilcox, Arizona at the Wild, West, uh, Wild Bunch Film Festival, which was fantastic. So the screenplay is already winning awards. Um, so hopefully that will be, uh, you know, not too far away. And we are also in the very early development stages of a new cinematic adaption of Colin Tilley's novel Blue Finn. Okay, I'll keep my eye out for that one. Uh, if you want to know more about the the film itself, you can jump online, www.thelegendofbenhall.com, which uh, gives you details about how you can purchase a copy of the film, or I'm sure you could pop into your local kind of huge DVD retailing yeah, J- place. JB Hi-Fi and Sanity, they, have, they stock copies, so go in there and grab one. And as we said, uh, if you're a member of the AFI Actor Awards, consider voting for it as well. And uh, so many other films that sometimes Australian films can, can open in a cinema and close within a week. So uh, get out there and support your local Australian film industry. I've been chatting with director Matthew Holmes. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. 
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.